0: Luke chapter 20, 27 through 40. Some of the Sadducees who said there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow, raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third, And in the same way, seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the women died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her, Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given into marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given into marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well, said teacher, No one dared to ask him anything more.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Morning, everybody. You can be seated. That cold that everyone seems to be getting finally got a hold of me, so uh, if I sound congested or I don't talk very loud or, I don't know, my nose is plugged and my ears are plugged and I feel like I'm in a fish tank. So. This passage is one of the um, stranger passages in the Gospels, at least in the Gospel of Luke. And um, when I saw that this was the one I would be preaching, I had a few choice words with God and with Greg, and then I realized that I signed up for it, so um, deal with it. Have you ever heard of Plato's Allegory of the Cave? Plato was a... uh, pretty well-known Greek theologian years and years and years and years ago. This is an image of an example um, of his allegory of the cave. And what this allegory uh, is trying to explain is he sets it up with, so you've got these people on the right side of the wall, and they are chained to the wall or chained to the ground, and they can't turn their head. All they can do is look at the wall ahead of them. And then you've got somebody behind them, a puppet master or an actor of some kind, And they are shining shadows on the wall of various objects and then telling the people what the object is. And then behind even that person in a larger image and in some renditions of this, um, you then have an exit out of the cave and then you get this three-dimensional reality above ground. And this was his way of arguing for various forms of understanding and depth of knowledge and being able to have conversations about various topics. Um, And the basic premise is that Those who are sitting on the side of the wall, they can only see the shadow. Ideally, there's multiple people sitting there. And if they talk to each other, they know how to use words to describe what they see. And the words that they are using are talking about the same thing. And so they say, OK, well, that is a bird. I'm told that's a bird, so this is what a bird is. It's a two-dimensional object. It's all black, and it has this shape, and maybe it moves around in this way. Is that what a bird is? No. But that's all that they know of what a bird is, because that is all the information they have been given. And everybody else on that side of the wall that is stuck with them looking only at the shadow has no ability to add any information to what is a bird. And so they all speak the same language, but are not even talking about the thing correctly if they were to then turn around and see what was actually casting the shadow. Maybe in an ideal picture, this bird would actually be a three-dimensional picture with color. But you turn around and go, oh. They have have roundness to them. They have wings that can go in and out. They're not just static. They have various colors about them. But you have no idea about that unless you actually turn around and see and are given more than the shadow. In the passage in Luke that we are in this morning, Jesus addresses ways that we, as Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians, have settled, I believe, for shadows on the wall we so easily become far too satisfied, I think, with life as it is now. And then when we make assumptions about heaven and how it will be like, we say, oh, yeah, it's going to be sinless. It's going to be painless. It's going to be easier. And those things sound great, and they are true. But even that understanding is a pale, inadequate shadow of what eternity with God is actually going to be like. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let's dive in today and see what Paul means by that mirror dimly. But before we do that, I need to introduce our main characters. Um, we get to be introduced to the Sadducees this morning, and they don't show up in Scripture very often. In fact, this is the only passage where Jesus directly addresses the Sadducees specifically. And we don't know as much about them as the Pharisees, um, but they were a small group of religious leaders and political elites. Um, The high priest was traditionally and normally a Sadducee, as well as high-ranking temple officials, maybe some scribes. Um, And they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't take the prophets. They didn't take the poetry, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Song of Solomon, all of that didn't take any of the history books, Chronicles, Judges, all that. All they accepted as scripture was the original Torah, the five books. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees were really at odds with each other religiously because though there is continuity, then there's a whole bunch of stuff, specifically prophecies about the Messiah, that are only just lightly hinted at in the first five books, and they get seriously expanded upon in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and other places like that. Um, so they didn't have a lot of religious influence. It was, a, it was a battle between them, but the Pharisees pretty much won out most of the time. Um, but they did have a lot of political power with Rome. And they were very comfortable being in the pockets of the religious leaders. You could almost think of them a little bit like tax collectors in the way that they used the Roman occupation for their benefit. And we're able to find this kind of comfortable middle ground where they still got benefits from being Roman citizens, but also benefits from being religious leaders and political leaders in Jerusalem. In some ways, they're really comparable to like a modernist today. Their biggest viewpoint that was different from the Pharisees and from Jewish belief in general is that they did not believe in any sort of afterlife. There was no life after death. There's no angels. There's no demons. There's no spiritual realm. All that you see. All that is physical is all that is. And God somehow exists outside of time and space and all of that, and He created it at some point and affects it to some degree. But we are not eternal beings. We have a start date and an end date, and then we just cease to exist. That's all that there is. <clears throat> so they were basically moralists, if you really come like, down to it, because there's no spiritual element. There's no, the only reason that you're going to atone for sins is to make yourself right so that you can be at, live as morally pure as possible. There's no real reason to obey God other than to just be morally right and try to be as righteous as possible, really earning righteousness, very Mormon-like, very Muslim-like in their belief system. Oh, and they were also really bad dudes besides all of that. Um, John 12, verses 9 through 11, this is talking about the Sadducees. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests, here Sadducees, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You can tell these guys are hypocrites through and through. They do not believe in any resurrection, and they're going to kill the guy that was resurrected to try to maintain their status. So in my mind, they're a perfect example of how, even for us, biblical knowledge does not change or save you if you don't let it sink deep into your soul and actually listen to what the Lord is telling you. And the Sadducees give us a really good example of what I'm talking about, these shadows of what we think the world is going to be like because of what we perceive now. Let's talk about relational identity in the kingdom of heaven. What are the shadows we know now? Things that we look at and maybe they're good, but they're partial. And what are they versus the reality of who we are as eternal relational beings? There are many shadows we could look at, but in this example in Scripture, um, since the Sadducees bring up marriage, that's the one that we're going to primarily look at this morning. We'll start reading in verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they're referencing what a thing is called leveret marriage. It was set in place by Moses, and it was this way to take care of both the family lineage of the man who died and also take care of the woman so that she was not left destitute, potentially childless, uh, with no sense of property or personal ownership of anything. Um, she'd seriously be in trouble. Prostitution was often the only alternative for somebody like that. And so this was a good thing. It was meant to protect people in the midst of the fall, in the midst of the brokenness of the world. Keep going in verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her in the same way. The seven died, leaving no children. So they're kind of creating this ridiculous scenario. This, This has seven brothers, and every single one of them dies before they're able to give her any children. So they take this example that's kind of obviously ridiculous, this pompous zinger, hey, Jesus, how in the world are you going to be able to answer this? They're trying to, they don't, know, they don't care about the answer. They want to know how they can find a way to expose Jesus. Because God doesn't allow polygamy, right? So if in the afterlife they're going to be married, which brother gets the wife. There's no way to solve this relational jigsaw puzzle in their mind. And this was a fairly common argument in their mind, and a pretty strong one to most people, of why there must be no resurrection. Keep reading to Jesus' answer, starting in verse 34. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come And in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. The biggest mistake that the Sadducees make here, besides not understanding their own Bible, I think it's hilarious that there's a lot of places Jesus could have gone all throughout the New Testament to prove that there is resurrection, but he goes to Exodus, one of the very, very few books that they actually believe, and he proves with a very, I mean, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. Is Exodus or Genesis? I'm totally blanking now. Exodus, yeah. Anyway, um, The Burning Bush. I mean, that's a definitive moment in Israelite history. Everybody knows that story well, really, really well. That's the one that shows up in all the kids' books is the burning bush. The Sadducees know that story inside and out, and Jesus goes, here, let me show you one verse that proves that there is resurrection because God is not God of the dead. He is God of the living. He meets them where they are and calls them out. But one of the biggest mistakes I think the Sadducees make is that they try to define the kingdom of God based on their shadows. They look at what they know, life as they understand it, And they think that therefore they now understand the way that things always will be and the way that God will choose to structure things for all eternity if there is such a thing. Is Jesus downplaying marriage in this passage? No, not at all. Marriage is a wonderful gift from God. It's a means of procreating and populating the earth with more God-worshippers. It's iron sharpening iron, a way to encourage one another to become more like Christ a partner to go on adventures and endeavors with together. And probably most importantly, Ephesians 5, it's a beautiful picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. You all know this. The church is the bride of Christ and submits to his leadership and his headship. And Jesus, as the husband of the church, lays down his life for her, sacrificing everything so that she can have eternal life and be cleansed from her sin. But what Jesus is saying is that marriage is a mere foretaste. It's it's a sample of the quality and depth of all human relationships that will be universally shared in eternity. By assuming there's marriage in heaven and, and hoping that there's marriage in heaven, you're actually in some way underestimating how good and perfect and rich every single relationship will be in heaven. I know that's a little hard for our minds to wrap around. But marriage, it's good, and it has a proper place and a time and a purpose. But when the kingdom of God fully arrives, when Jesus comes back and the world is judged, there's going to be no need for marriage anymore. There's no more new humans being created, and all relationships are going to be equally deep and meaningful and rich and powerful. That being said, if Jesus' words here make you nervous, you are in good company. I'm right there with you. My wife is amazing. I love being married to her. It is an absolute joy. And the thought of not being married to her is something I don't even want to process right now. It is really hard for me to trust the Lord that what that is in heaven is going to be better than what I have going now. And for those of you who have already lost a spouse, I can't even fathom what you've already had to go through. But the hope that we get to cling to if we trust in God's goodness and, and not our shadow, what we would like to think is the best that we could possibly fathom, is that when you get to be with them again, and you will, the way in which you get to spend eternity with them is infinitely better than the best it ever was while you were both here on earth. And there's no more death to us part, till death to us part, kind of looming over relationship. I always laugh at something about that phrase. I know what it's saying, when we say, at the end of all the vows, till death do us part, it means that only death is going to separate us. We're going to be t- together for as long as both of us are alive. But I, maybe it's just the way it's worded or something. But it's like, I'm going to love you. I'm going to cherish you through thick and thin. We're going to be the best friends. We're going to be lovers. We're going to be partners. We're to, Until we die. Like, just this, Ugh, at the end of the, you know, it, just, it always has struck me as kind of funny. Jesus tells his disciples a couple chapters back in Luke 18:29 through 30 18:29 through 30 <clears throat> and Jesus said to them Truly I say to you there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Really interesting statement. Receive many times more what? Houses, wives, and children? We're not Mormon. We're not waiting for a whole bunch of wives and children and properties in the age to come. What is is he saying? He's saying the blessing, the benefit, the goodness, everything good about every good relationship you've ever had, if you are willing to give that up for the kingdom, if you're willing to give up your shadow and your ideal and trust that what God is designing and creating and preparing for eternity is better than what you can perceive here, and you submit to that, you will be, you know, socks will be blown off at how amazing it's going to be when you get there. And we receive some of those benefits as brothers and sisters in Christ now. A church is amazing. There's so many friends here, and we have each other's backs. And the number of stories I hear of people taking care of one another, bringing meals and mowing lawns and being there when there's a new baby and all that other stuff, we have this amazing community of like 300 people in here that have each other's backs. I don't know how many other people get to say that. We have an entire church directory of people I could call up, and I know they would be on my side. But even now, we only get a foretaste of that, and we get to receive the full measure of God's beautiful design for human relationships when Christ returns in glory and reigns on a new heaven and a new earth. And so there's no use clinging to these shadows, these ideals of marriage or whatever kind of relationship you want to think about, these glimpses through a mirror dimly. Because in the new heaven and the new earth, you're not going to have to deal with pride. You're not going to have to deal with selfishness. You're not going to have to deal with all of the other issues and problems that come up in any relationship but get magnified exponentially in marriage. And as a warning, there can also be unintentional and unexpected harm done, honestly, in our evangelism and in our discipleship to one another if we cling to these shadows as these ideals that we hold up in the here and now. The Sadducees may not have meant it, but did you notice how demeaning their question was, particularly to women, but honestly, everybody involved? Their hypothetical conundrum is kind of offensive. Whose wife will she be? Which brother gets to claim her as private property for all eternity? If I can say it without being crass, who gets to sleep with her if all seven guys already have? Come on, Jesus, let's be fair here. You aren't going to leave a guy hanging, huh? What does Jesus say back in verse 34? The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. Those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection of the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die for they are like angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. So Jesus very specifically changes the wording of the people who are worthy to attain to the resurrection, who live in eternal life. Jesus restores the honor and the dignity of this fictitious woman in this example. And I think all women, you are not a wife in the age to come. You are a daughter of the king. And I think to men as well, you're not merely a dead guy's brother who now has to follow this law and marry this other gal so that this whole religious and legal system can be carried out through. You are a son of the king. In the eternal kingdom of heaven, you are defined only by your relationship to the king. And the problem with our shadows is that we tend to end up putting limits on God's power and goodness and the things that we think he can do when we impose these expectations on the way that he would like to shape things. And we end up communicating to people those misconceptions and misperceptions of God's goodness, God's power, and God's ultimate reality. If we turn the shadow and the foretaste of marriage, good thing, into the highest ideal form of male-female relationship and assume that, well, that must be what heaven is like if everybody's like a spouse because that's the best picture we have. We make the mistake like the Sadducees and we inadvertently declare that anyone who is single is either missing out on God's blessing or is perhaps even a second-rate Christian. Listen, as good as being a good mom, a wife, husband, dad, as good as those things are, as right and beautiful as those things are, yes, we have ways in the Bible that teach us how to be good in those different roles. Those roles are not your identity. It's not where your eternal value lies. And even the very healthiest husband-wife or parent-child relationship is a pale and inadequate example, a shadow of the absolute perfection of all relationships we will have together in the age to come. I find I have to be careful about this as I raise my daughters. I have two girls, ages four and two. And I already find myself saying things like, when you're going to be married someday. And that's good. That's a good thing to desire. I want to be a grandpa someday. I want them to experience the joy and the challenge of marriage. I want them to know what they put me through and have kids of their own. But as their father and their spiritual head, my primary job is to teach them that they are whole and complete in Christ and that their personal relationship with Jesus, their Savior, and God, their Father, is the primary source. Of their identity not college graduate not wife not mother not successful entrepreneur child of God and it can be so easy to subtly start placing these expectations on our children and, and on other people that want to enter into this community I think we have to be careful as a church as well imposing these shadows and these Christian expectations particularly on single young men and women It inadvertently hinders our ability to meet them where they're at and affirm their value as brothers and sisters, partners in the Lord, complete persons loved and treasured by God exactly as they are in this moment and capable of really effective kingdom ministry right now. In fact, Paul often says that don't get married. You're going to have a whole lot more free time to be able to serve the kingdom even better because you're going to be distracted if you get married. He seems kind of down on marriage. I was looking at all the different passages, and it was kind of a Debbie Downer, so I had to go back to the Psalms and Song of Solomon to kind of get myself picked up again. Oh, no, this is a good thing. God likes this. This is good. But I just wonder how, what kind of unintentional harm we have done to our single brothers and sisters and to our children just with those, oh, well, when you're married. I feel like we've even structured ministries that way sometimes. I don't know at this church specifically, but I've seen it before. It's like this graduated progression. You have a young singles ministry and the hope is they meet other young singles and graduate to the young marrieds ministry and the hope is that they have a twinkle in their eyes and they graduate to the young parents ministry so then they can serve in the parents ministry and the kids. But that's not how discipleship works. That's not progressive sanctification. The only thing that matters is becoming more like Christ, not fitting into these shadows of these ideals that we assume are the best way to live life. There's nothing wrong with being married. There's nothing wrong with having kids. Most of us will and most of us do or most of us already have. That was a Genesis 2 call and we are still called to be faithful to that if the Lord so wills. That's wonderful. But I think we have to be careful about how we hold our shadows on pedestals. What about other shadows? There's a lot of them we could go to, but quickly turn with me to Matthew 18. I want to go over a very different one there. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. Should be up on the screen for you as well. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples come to Jesus with their preconceived notion, their shadow, if you will, of what greatness and honorable status looks like in the kingdom of heaven, because that's the way that it looks like on earth now. Who gets to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who gets to sit at your right hand? Who gets to be the head honcho? Who gets to sit at the head of the table when everyone else goes, ooh, look at that guy? And in classic Jesus fashion, he flips everything upside down. You want to be at the top? You dive to the bottom. Your definition of greatness in this world has no bearing on what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. And significantly, that word turn in verse, uh, let's see. Verse 3, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become children, that turn is a very, very similar Hebrew word to the word repent. It's to turn from your ways and acknowledge that you have pride, you have sin, you're clinging to something. It's not just have a child like innocence. There's There's an element to that, or a child like faith, trusting so faithfully and blindly as children do of their parents. But it's acknowledging that like a child, you are helpless. You are wholly incapable of providing for yourself. You aren't going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're not going to be this self made man or self made woman that earns this high ranking in the kingdom of heaven because of how awesome you are. So, no matter what shadow we look to in the kingdom of God, who you are, your identity is not defined by your human relationships, your titles, your circumstances, whatever achievements you may have mustered, but by who you are in Christ. And you know what's even more dangerous than imposing these shadows on your concept of the people around you or eternity is imposing these shadows on Jesus himself. Imposing these shadows on your definition of Messiah. This is why Jesus counters the Sadducees' silly conundrum. Ooh, big problem, guys. With a real doozy of a mind bender. He goes on, Jeff didn't read it, but we're gonna keep reading there, Luke 18 or sorry, 20, starting in verse 41. So he answers them, you know, telling them, hey, children of the kingdom, it's an entirely different definition of relationships. And this says they no longer dared ask him any questions. They're like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. He shut us down again. Verse 41, but he said to them, how can David say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and he quotes Psalm 110 here, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And then the passage just ends there. It just moves on to something else completely. Notice he doesn't answer his own question. And and we don't know whether the, the Sadducees responded or not, which is probably for the better because every time they respond to Jesus, they sound like absolute fools. But I think Luke leaves this cliffhanger in this narrative on purpose because this is the central question. The one that he asks them is the central question. for all people for all time. The Sadducees are concerned about what kind of marital relationships and what's the legal standing of various types of relationships in the kingdom is, which is this completely side issue. It may be important to a degree, but Jesus goes, let's not worry about that. How about who is Jesus? Who is the Messiah? Who is the Savior? And I think because Luke kind of ends on that cliffhanger and then moves on, he's telling the reader to ask that same question. You have to answer the question Jesus asks. He didn't just ask the Sadducees. Every single person who has ever existed has to answer this question. It doesn't matter what you think eternity looks like if you don't know the answer to this question because you're not going to be there. It's kind of like Costco. Have you ever tried to enter Costco without a card? Well, they will not let you in. They will chase you down. I tell you what, it is hard getting into that place. So in the kingdom of heaven, it's not a plastic card like Costco. It's who is Jesus. That's your Costco card into the kingdom of heaven. So really quickly, let's look at all four gospels' presentation of the triumphal entry when Jesus enters Jerusalem right before the crucifixion. Because there is something absolutely fascinating here in the way that the four different gospel accounts show the triumphal entry, and specifically what the various people and the crowds that are involved say about Jesus. In essence, they're kind of answering this question that Jesus is asking. So the first is Matthew 21, verse 9. And it says this. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So first we have primarily son of David. We move to the Mark account, Mark 11, chapters 9, sorry, chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So for Mark, we have coming kingdom of our father David. There's David as, as the primary emphasis mentioned again. Now skip Luke and we'll go to John. John chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So here they call him king of Israel. So in these three examples, what you have is an emphasis on royal line. They're excited that King David's successor is coming. The king who is supposed to be better than David, or at least as good as David. And these are not bad things to call Jesus. Son of David is an absolutely appropriate thing to call him. It it means a fulfillment of prophecy. Everything that Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and everybody else looked forward to, and even the kingship of David was a a mere, you know, partial image of, is true. So like I said, I'm not pointing out that these are bad things to call Jesus, but I'm pointing out what the people are emphasizing. Now let's look at Luke. This is really interesting Luke chapter 19, verses 37 and 38. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God. Now notice first, Luke has an interesting account because Luke doesn't mention the crowds. Luke mentions his disciples. If you'll remember, the book of Luke was written primarily to Gentiles. So we get this really interesting image of Jesus' triumphal entry that's different than the other three that are written to more Jewish audiences. Keep reading. His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The king who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you are a student of your Bible or remember that we were recently in the Christmas season, it's so interesting to me that their proclamation of Jesus sounds a whole lot like the proclamation of the angels to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That sounds a whole lot like peace on earth, goodwill toward men, glory to God in the highest, all the things that the angels sing. There's absolutely an echo here of the disciples repeating, echoing and expanding upon what the angels foretold at his birth in the beginning of the of Luke's work. The Jews wanted and were looking forward to the son of David. And they had every reason to be. Most of their scriptures were telling them to look forward to the son of David. But they were looking forward to a king who was as good as David was, who would kick out the Romans and make Jerusalem great again. But in Luke's account, Jesus mentions the disciples. Like I said, the disciples are the ones that Luke points out. And they don't mention David or Israel. They mention heaven. He is the king of heaven. And I think there's a couple reasons for that, because this was written, remember, primarily to Gentiles. This Luke was written primarily for outsiders. And so to some degree, like saying son of David or king of Israel, it's like, well, great, but I don't live in Israel. I live in America. What's the big deal about king of Israel? Or son of David, if I hadn't been steeped in the years and the years of the prophecies that I've been looking forward to and waiting to come true, it's like, okay, yeah, David was a decent king, except for the whole Bathsheba thing and whatever, but you know, I can look over that, I guess. Maybe he's a good king, okay, but it doesn't sink in the way it does for a Jew. And so for us Gentiles, when we look at the Luke account, he tailors it to say, hey, you know what? I know you're not an Israelite, and that's why it's super, super good news that he is not just the king of the Jews. He is not just the son of David. He is king of the universe. He is king for everyone. There are two options to choose from in Jesus' question. Remember, he poses it to them. How can it be that Christ is David's son? He's saying, how is is it possible that... If, he, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Because if he calls him Lord, he's using the word for God. How can he call him God if he's his son? Isn't God not begotten? Hasn't he always existed? So what Jesus is trying to get at is not answer this riddle. It's which one is more important to you for Jesus? First option, if Christ is David's son first, if that's what makes you most excited, about him as his royal lineage, his kingly power, his ability to stamp out the Romans, then you're just looking for your best life now. You're looking for Jesus to make your country and your current life the way that you want it to be, to affirm your shadows, maybe upgrade them a little bit. But if Christ is David's Lord first, if that's what makes you most excited, is that he is God, not just a good king like David, then you've got the right Jesus. And you will submit to his authority in your life and say, not my will, but yours be done, O King of the universe. And you let him define reality. And you trust in his goodness rather than your hopes and dreams and perceptions of what you would like eternal life to be. If Jesus is anything less to to you than this, I don't know how else to tell you this, but you're not getting into eternity. This is the only way is submitting to Jesus' definition of reality. Sometimes I wonder, let me wrap it up with this, sometimes I wonder if our reluctance to follow Jesus, and to evangelize, and to share with others stems from this lack of grasping just how good God is and just how much Jesus loves us. It's so easy for us to first question God's goodness because we like our shadows. They're familiar, they're controllable, they're cozy. Marriage is wonderful. It's got a lot of challenges, but overall it's awesome. Raising children has its you know, challenges, but children are wonderful. We see the goodness in this life, which is genuinely good. It is. I don't mean to downplay it at all, but we assume that then that's the best that God can do. As if earth as it is now in its fallen state is somehow his magnum opus. And we messed it up, and, and now we just got to make the best of it. Or if we're in the midst of tragedy and things are not going well, and you're wondering, how long, oh, Lord? And we can start to assume that, well, maybe God doesn't want good things for me ever because He certainly is not giving me good things now. I love this quote from theologian Richard It Should be up on the screen. Though eternal life is to be contrasted with the mortal life that runs out in death, it is far from being mere never-ending existence. It is the fullness of life in relationship with God, life to the nth degree, a comprehensive term. For all the blessings God has to give humanity. It's not mere just not dying anymore, just a little slight upgrade from life as it is now. I love this. It is the fullness of life in relationship with God, life to the nth degree, a comprehensive term for all the blessings God has to give to humanity. None of us know what this is. None of us know what this is like. We get glimpses of it maybe in an amazing devotional time or when we're in fellowship with other believers together. The Garden of Eden wasn't even this. The Garden of Eden was limited. The Garden of Eden was, it was raw resources. And yes, walking with God in the cool of the day, absolutely, having nothing that hinders your relationship with God. But even that was a blueprint. It was a blank canvas for humanity to start building something. Scripture says it, that, that Jesus is building something new, for us in heaven. You saw how humanity did. A lot of good we did trying to make the garden into something beautiful. He didn't put eternity into human hands. Jesus is the one cultivating and creating into something absolutely perfect, amazing, beautiful. And We have absolutely no concept of reality. The closest we can get is read Revelation 21 and 22. And even that is, is like John said I have no words to actually describe how incredible it was, so I'm going to think of the best words that I can, and they're an absolute pale comparison to the reality. There's, there's, other, there's another dimension. There is colors that we have not seen. There is tastes that we have not tasted. There is experiences that we have not felt, emotions we have not conceived of. It is, it's going from three dimension to four dimension. It's being able to see ultraviolet light. It's being able to fly. I don't know what we can do. We you look at Jesus' resurrected body, He walked through walls. He just teleported from place to place, hundreds of miles away. But he also ate food. We have angels like bodies like angels, and I have no idea what that looks like, but it sounds incredible. And the older I'm getting, I know I'm only 32, but I swear stuff is already hurting more and longer. The more I'm like, yes, I cannot wait for that. I heard that. Howard's like, just you wait, young man. You don't even know. The meaning of the word, pain. But secondly, we can also question Jesus' love for us. Honestly, because the cross and the resurrection was a long time ago. Some of you have celebrated a lot of Easters. He's still risen, risen indeed. Yep, nothing's changed. We're just waiting for him to come back. Another Easter, another, yep, I'm so glad he did that for me. Thank you, Jesus. But why is he taking so long? And in the meantime, I'm still sinning. I'm still struggling with that, Jesus. Why have you not fixed that for me? Don't you understand how much I want to obey and honor you? Don't you understand that I, I want to be a guy who reads the word for hours a day, but Netflix is so much more interesting? Why can't you be like my shadow, the way I think you should sanctify and save? Make me never sin again on the spot. He could. Why doesn't he? Honestly, guys, I don't, I don't know. It's his will. It's his will. There are things I could go to in scripture, Romans 5 and other places that talk about how we become more like Christ through the sanctifying process of struggling and failing and seeing that God is still good and we get to know him more. There's this amazing, beautiful process I don't claim to understand. The bottom line is is he he could just all make us sinless and just take us up the moment that we profess our faith in him. And and he chooses not to. and, And I have to be okay with it. And I have to say, even though you do not save me in the way that I would prefer, Even though you do not make my life the way that I would prefer, I am going to trust that you are good and your way is perfect. In either case, whether we question God's goodness or we question Jesus' love for us, like Jesus' disciples in Matthew 18, we need to repent of our pride, thinking we know how things should be, imposing our shadows on God's reality, and become like little children who acknowledge that he is God and he is king and we are not. Eternal life is not defined by your shadows and ideals, but the reality of Jesus as king. And thank God for that, because he is so good and loves you so much. And for those two reasons, I promise you eternity is going to be far more incredible than you can possibly imagine. Until that day, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, give us the strength to endure till the end. help us save as absolutely many as we can snatching them out of the fire will you pray with me lord thank you that you have something so incredibly wonderful for us that our minds cannot even fathom lord forgive us for not trusting in your goodness forgive us for assuming that we know what would be the best version of you Lord, may we be unsatisfied with things in this life that are not of you. May we be almost tired, tired of the things in this life and only satisfied by you. Like Jesus says at the woman at the well, finding water that causes us to never thirst anymore. Lord, keep us humble remind our hearts to repent of our pride, repent of our selfishness, repent of assuming we know what is best. Lord, thank you that you have not taken us home yet, that we might save others, for that you would ignite in us a fire for evangelism, you would ignite in us a passion to see broken people healed, a passion to see lost people headed for eternal suffering, brought into a state of eternal glory and eternal satisfaction in you. Lord, may we devote our lives to telling people just how good God is. Continue to strengthen us as we pursue that, Lord. We love you, and we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the beautiful blessings that you have given us now, and we thank you that as good as those things are, they are mere pathetic shadows, mirrors that we see through dimly of the absolute incredible perfection you have prepared for us and for yourself, for your son in the ages. Give us perseverance until that day. In your name we pray, amen. Will you stand with me as we close with one final song?